Book One, Chapter Four, Part Two of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The interior of the mission, a great oblong of whitewashed adobe with a flat ceiling, was lighted dimly by the sanctuary lamp that hung from three long chains just over the chancel rail at the far end of the church and by two or three cheap kerosene lamps in brackets of imitation bronze. All around the walls was the inevitable series of pictures representing the Stations of the Cross. They were of a hideous crudity of design and composition, yet were wrought out with an innocent, unquestioning sincerity that was not without its charm. Each picture framed alike in gilt bore its suitable inscription in staring black letters. Simon the Cyrenian helps Jesus to carry his cross. St. Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. Jesus falls for the fourth time, and so on. Halfway up the length of the church the pews began, coffin-like boxes of blackened oak, shining from years of friction, each with its door, while over them, and built out from the wall, was the pulpit, with its tarnished gilt sounding board above it like the raised cover of a great hat-box. Between the pews and the aisle, the violent vermilion of a strip of ingrain carpet assaulted the eye. Further on were the steps to the altar, the chancel rail of worm-riddled oak, the high altar with its napery from the bargain counters of a San Francisco store, the massive silver candlesticks, each as much as one man could lift, the gift of a dead Spanish queen, and last the pictures of the chancel, the Virgin in a glory, a Christ in agony on the cross, and St. John the Baptist, the patron saint of the mission, the San Juan Batista of the early days, a gaunt gray figure in skins, two fingers upraised in the gesture of benediction. The air of the place was cool and damp, and heavy with the flat, sweet scent of stale incense smoke. It was of a vault-like stillness, and the closing of the door behind Vanamee re-echoed from corner to corner with a prolonged reverberation of thunder. However, Father Sarrio was not in the church. Vanamee took a couple of turns the length of the aisle, looking about into the chapels on either side of the chancel. But the building was deserted. The priest had been there recently, nevertheless, for the altar furniture was in disarray, as though he had been rearranging it but a moment before. On both sides of the church, and halfway up their length, the walls were pierced by low archways, in which were massive wooden doors, clamped with iron bolts. One of these doors, on the pulpit side of the church, stood ajar, and stepping to it and pushing it wide open, Vanamee looked diagonally across a little patch of vegetables, beets, radishes, and lettuce, to the rear of the building that had once contained the cloisters, and through an open window saw Father Saria diligently polishing the silver crucifix that usually stood on the high altar. Vanamee did not call to the priest. Putting a finger to either temple, he fixed his eyes steadily upon him for a moment as he moved about at his work. In a few seconds he closed his eyes, but only part way. The pupils contracted, his forehead lowered to an expression of poignant intensity. Soon afterward he saw the priest pause abruptly in the act of drawing the cover over the crucifix, looking about him from side to side. He turned again to his work, and again came to a stop, perplexed, curious. With uncertain steps, and evidently wondering why he did so, he came to the door of the room and opened it, 
looking out into the night. Vanamy, hidden in the deep shadow of the archway, did not move, but his eyes closed, and the intense expression deepened on his face. The priest hesitated, moved forward a step, turned back, paused again, then came straight across the garden patch, brusquely colliding with Vanamy, still motionless in the recess of the archway. Saria gave a great start, catching his breath. Oh, oh, it's you. Was it you I heard calling? No, no, I, I could not have heard. I, I remember now. What a strange power. I am not sure that it is right to do this thing, Vanamy. I, I had to come. I do not know why. It is a great force, a power. I, I don't like it, Vanamy. Sometimes it frightens me. Vanamy put his chin in the air. If I had wanted to, sir, I could have made you come to me from back there in the Quien Sabe Ranch. The priest shook his head. It troubles me, he said, to think that my own will can count for so little. Just now I could not resist. If a deep river had been between us, I must have crossed it. Suppose I had been asleep now. It would have been all the easier, answered Vanamy. I understand as little of these things as you, but I think if you had been asleep, your power of resistance would have been so much the more weakened. Perhaps I should not have waked. Perhaps I should have come to you in my sleep. Perhaps. Saria crossed himself. It is occult, he hazarded. No, I, I, I do not like it. Dear fellow, he put his hand on Vanamy's shoulder. Don't, don't call me that way again. Promise? See. He held out his hand. I am all of a tremble. There. We won't speak of it further. Wait a moment. I, I have only to put the cross in its place and a fresh altar cloth, and then I am done. Tomorrow is the feast of the Holy Cross, and I am preparing against it. The night is fine. We will smoke a cigar in the cloister garden. A few moments later the two passed out of the door on the other side of the church opposite the pulpit. Saria adjusting a silk skull-cap on his tonsured head. He wore his cassock now, and was far more the churchman in appearance than when Vanamee and Presley had seen him on a former occasion. They were now in the cloister garden. The place was charming. Everywhere grew clumps of palms and magnolia trees. A grapevine over a century old occupied a trellis in one angle of the walls which surrounded the garden on two sides. Along the third side was the church itself, while the fourth was open, the wall having crumbled away, its site marked only by a line of eight great pear-trees, older even than the grapevine, gnarled, twisted, bearing no fruit. Directly opposite the pear-trees in the south wall of the garden was a round, arched portal, whose gate giving upon the esplanade in front of the mission was always closed. Small graveled walks, well-kept, bordered with mignonette, twisted about among the flower-beds and underneath the magnolia-trees. In the centre was a little fountain in a stone basin green with moss, while just beyond, between the fountain and the pear-trees, stood what was left of a sundial, the bronze gnomon, green with the beatings of the weather, the figures of the half-circle of the dial worn away, illegible. But on the other side of the fountain, and directly opposite the door of the mission, Ranged against the wall were nine graves, three with headstones, the rest with slabs. Two of Saria's predecessors were buried here. Three of the graves were those of Mission Indians. 
One was thought to contain a former alcalde of Guadalajara. Two more held the bodies of De La Cuesta and his young wife, taking with her to the grave the illusion of her husband's love. And the last one, the ninth, at the end of the line, nearest the pear trees, was marked by a little headstone, the smallest of any, on which, together with the proper dates, only sixteen years apart, was cut the name Angele Varian. But the quiet, the repose, the isolation of the little cloister garden was infinitely delicious. It was a tiny corner of the great valley that stretched in all directions around it shut off, discreet, romantic, a garden of dreams, of enchantments, of illusions. Outside there, far off, the great grim world went clashing through its grooves, but in here never an echo of the grinding of its wheels entered to jar upon the subdued modulation of the fountain's uninterrupted murmur. Saria and Vanamy found their way to a stone bench against the side wall of the mission, near the door from which they had just issued, and sat down, Saria lighting a cigar, Vanamee rolling and smoking cigarettes in a Mexican fashion. All about them widened the vast, calm night. All the stars were out. The moon was coming up. There was no wind, no sound. The insistent flowing of the fountain seemed only as the symbol of the passing of time, a thing that was understood rather than heard, inevitable, prolonged. At long intervals, a faint breeze, hardly more than a breath, found its way into the garden over the enclosing walls and passed overhead, spreading everywhere the delicious mingled perfume of magnolia blossoms, of mignonette, of moss, of grass, and all the calm green life silently teeming within the enclosure of the walls. From where he sat, Vanamee, turning his head, could look out underneath the pear trees to the north. Close at hand, a little valley lay between the high ground on which the mission was built and the line of low hills just beyond Broderson Creek on the Quien Sabe. In here was the seed ranch, where Angele's people had cultivated a unique and beautiful stretch of five hundred acres, planted thick with roses, violets, lilies, tulips, iris, carnations, tube-roses, poppies, heliotrope, all manner and description of flowers, five hundred acres of them, solid, thick, exuberant, blooming and fading, and leaving their seed or slips to be marketed broadcast all over the United States. This had been the vocation of Angele's parents, raising flowers for their seeds. All over the country the seed ranch was known. Now it was arid, almost dry, but when in full flower toward the middle of summer the sight of these half-thousand acres royal with color vermilion, azure, flaming yellow, was a marvel. When an east wind blew, men on the streets of Bonneville, nearly twelve miles away, could catch the scent of this valley of flowers, this chaos of perfume. And into this life of flowers, this world of color, this atmosphere oppressive and clogged and cloyed and thickened with sweet odor, Angele had been born. There she had lived her sixteen years. There she had died. It was not surprising that Vanamee, with his intense, delicate sensitiveness to beauty, his almost abnormal capacity for great happiness, had been drawn to her, had loved her so deeply. She came to him out of the flowers, 
the smell of the roses in her hair of gold that hung in two straight plates on either side of her face, the reflection of the violets in the profound dark blue of her eyes, perplexing, heavy-lidded, almond-shaped, oriental, the aroma and the imperial red of the carnations in her lips with their almost Egyptian fullness, the whiteness of the lilies, the perfume of the lilies, and the lilies' slender balancing grace in her neck. Her hands disengaged the odor of the heliotropes. The folds of her dress gave off the enervating scent of poppies. Her feet were redolent of hyacinths. For a long time after sitting down upon the bench, neither the priest nor Vanamy spoke. But after a while Saria took his cigar from his lips, saying, How still it is. This is a beautiful old garden, peaceful, very quiet. Some day I shall be buried here. I like to remember that, and you too, Vanamy. In Sabe. Yes, you too. Where else? No, it is better here, yonder, by the side of the little girl. I am not able to look forward yet, sir. The things that are to be are somehow nothing to me at all. For me, they amount to nothing. They amount to everything, my boy. Yes, to one part of me, but not to the part of me that belonged to Angele, the best part. Oh, you don't know, he exclaimed with a sudden movement. No one can understand. What is it to me when you tell me that some time after I shall die, too, somewhere in a vague place you call heaven, I shall see her again? Do you think that the idea of that ever made anyone's sorrow easier to bear? You ever took the edge from anyone's grief? But do you believe that? Oh, belief. Believe, echoed the other. What do I believe? I don't know. I believe or I don't believe. I can remember what she was, but I cannot hope what she will be. Hope, after all, is only memory seen reversed. When I try to see her in another life, whatever you call it, in heaven, beyond the grave, this vague place of yours, when I try to see her there, she comes to my imagination only as what she was, material. Earthly, I loved her. Imperfect, you say. But that is as I saw her, and as I saw her, I loved her. And as she was, material, earthly, imperfect, she loved me. It's that, that I want, he exclaimed. I don't want her changed. I don't want her spiritualized, exalted, glorified, celestial. I want her. I think it is only this feeling that has kept me from killing myself. I would rather be unhappy in the memory of what she actually was than be happy in the realization of her transformed, changed, made celestial. I am only human. Her soul... That was beautiful, no doubt. But, again, it was something very vague, intangible, hardly more than a phrase. But the touch of her hand was real. The sound of her voice was real. The clasp of her arms about my neck was real. <sighs> he cried, shaken with a sudden wrench of passion. 
Give those back to me. Tell your God to give those back to me. The sound of her voice, the touch of her hand, the clasp of those dear arms, real, real, and then, then you may talk to me of heaven. Saria shook his head. But when you meet her again, he observed, in heaven, you too will be changed. You will see her spiritualized with spiritual eyes. As she is now, she, she does not appeal to you. I understand that. It is because, as you say, you are only human, while she is divine. But when you come to be like her, as she is now, you will know her as she really is, not as she seemed to be, because her voice was sweet, because her hair was pretty, because her hand was warm in yours, vanity. Your talk is that of a foolish child. You are like one of the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote. Do you remember? Listen now. I can recall the words. And such words, beautiful and terrible at the same time. Such a majesty. They march like soldiers with trumpets. But some man will say, as you have said just now, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool! That which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it the body as it hath pleased him. And to every seed his own body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It is because you are a natural body that you cannot understand her, nor wish for her as a spiritual body, but when you are both spiritual, then you shall know each other as you are, know as you never knew before. Your grain of wheat is your symbol of immortality. You bury it in the earth, it dies, and rises again a thousand times more beautiful. Vanamy, your dear girl was only a grain of humanity that we have buried here the end is not yet. But all this is so old, so old. The world learned it a thousand years ago. And yet each man that has ever stood by the open grave of anyone he loved must learn it all over again from the beginning. Vanamee was silent for a moment, looking off with unseeing eyes between the trunks of the pear trees over the little valley. That may all be as you say, he answered after a while. I have not learned it yet in any case. Now I only know that I love her, oh, as if it all were yesterday, and that I am suffering, suffering, always. He leaned forward, his head supported on his clenched fists, the infinite sadness of his face deepening like a shadow the tears brimming in his deep-set eyes. A question that he must ask, which involved the thing that was scarcely to be thought of, occurred to him at this moment. After hesitating for a long moment, he said, I have been away a long time, and I have had no news of this place since I left. Is there anything to tell, father? Has any discovery been made, any suspicion developed as to the other. The priest shook his head. Not a word, not a whisper. It is a mystery. It always will be. 
Vanamee clasped his head between his clenched fists, rocking himself to and fro. Oh, the terror of it, he murmured. The horror of it, and, and she, thinking it's Saria, only sixteen, a little girl so innocent that she never knew what wrong meant. Pure as a little child is pure, who believed that all things were good, mature only in her love. And to be struck down like that while your God looked down from heaven and would not take her part. All at once he seemed to lose control of himself. One of those furies of impotent grief and wrath that assailed him from time to time, blind, insensate, incoherent, suddenly took possession of him. A torrent of words issued from his lips, and he flung out an arm, the fist clenched in a fierce, quick gesture, partly of despair, partly of defiance, partly of supplication. No, your God would not take her part. Where was God's mercy in that? Where was heaven's protection in that? Where was the loving kindness you preach about? Why did God give her life if it was to be stamped out? Why did God give her the power of love if it was to come to nothing? Saria, listen to me! Why did God make her so divinely pure if he permitted that abomination? <laughs> he exclaimed bitterly. Your God! Why, an Apache buck would have been more merciful. Your God! There is no God. There is only the devil. The heaven you pray to is only a joke, a wretched trick, a delusion. It is only hell that is real. Saria caught him by the arm. "'You are a fool and a child,' he exclaimed. "'And it is blasphemy what you are saying. "'I forbid it, you understand? "'I forbid it!' Vanamy turned on him with a sudden cry. "'Then tell your God to give her back to me!' Saria started away from him, his eyes widening in astonishment, surprised out of all composure by the other's outburst. Vanamy's swarthy face was pale, the sunken cheeks and deep-set eyes were marked with great black shadows. The priest no longer recognized him. The face, that face of the ascetic, lean, framed in its long black hair and pointed beard, was quivering with the excitement of hallucination. It was the face of the inspired shepherds of the Hebraic legends, living close to nature, the younger prophets of Israel, dwellers in the wilderness, solitary, imaginative, believing in the vision, having strange delusions, gifted with strange powers. In a brief second of thought, Saria understood out into the wilderness, the vast arid desert of the southwest, Vanamy had carried his grief. For days, for weeks, months even, he had been alone, a solitary speck, lost in the immensity of the horizons. Continually he was brooding, haunted with his sorrow, thinking, thinking, often hard put to it for food. The body was ill-nourished, and the mind, concentrated forever upon one subject, had recoiled upon itself, had preyed upon the naturally nervous temperament, till the imagination had become exalted, morbidly active, diseased, beset with hallucinations, forever in search of the manifestation of the miracle. It was small wonder that bringing a fancy so distorted back to the scene of a vanished happiness, Vanamy should be racked with the most violent illusions, beset in the throes of a veritable hysteria, "'Tell your God to give her back to me!' he repeated with fierce insistence. It was the pitch of mysticism, the imagination harassed and goaded beyond the normal round, suddenly flipping from the circumference, spinning off at a tangent, 
out into the void where all things seemed possible, hurtling through the dark there, groping for the supernatural, clamoring for the miracle. And it was also the human, natural protest against the inevitable, the irrevocable, the spasm of revolt under the sting of death, the rebellion of the soul at the victory of the grave. "'He can't give her back to me, if only he will!' Stanamie cried. "'Sahria, you must help me. I tell you, I warn you, sir, I can't last much longer under it. My head is all wrong with it. I've no more hold on my mind. Something must happen, or I, or I shall lose my senses.' I am breaking down under it all, my body and my mind alike. Bring her to me. Make God show her to me. If all tales are true, it would not be the first time. If I cannot have her, at least let me see her as she was, real, earthly, not her spirit or ghost. I want her real self, undefiled again. If this is dementia, then let me be demented. But help me. You and your God create the delusion, do the miracle. Stop, cried the priest again, shaking him roughly by the shoulder. Stop, be yourself. This is dementia, but I shall not let you be demented. Think of what you are saying. Bring her back to you. Is that the way of God? I thought you were a man. This is the talk of a weak-minded girl. Vanamese stirred abruptly in his place, drawing a long breath and looking about him vaguely, as if he came to himself. You are right, he muttered. I hardly know what I am saying at times, but there are moments when my whole mind and soul seem to rise up in rebellion against what has happened, when it seems to me that I am stronger than death and that if I only knew how to use the strength of my will, concentrate my power of thought, volition, that I could, I don't know, not call her back, but something. A diseased and distorted mind is capable of hallucinations, if that is what you mean, observed Saria. Uh, perhaps that is what I mean. Perhaps I only want the delusion after all. Saria did not reply, and there was a long silence. In the damp south corners of the walls, a frog began to croak at exact intervals. The little fountain rippled monotonously, and a magnolia flower dropped from one of the trees, falling straight as a plummet through the motionless air, and settling upon the graveled walk with a faint, rustling sound. Otherwise, the stillness was profound. End of Book 1, Chapter 4, Part 2